From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is on trade policy, specifically the North American Free Trade Agreement. Joining me today are Rob Scott from the Economic and Policy Institute and Ed Gerwin from the Progressive Policy Institute. That's next on The Public Morality. If you listen to the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, along with the candidate for the Democratic Party's nomination, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, America's economic sky is falling under the weight of a horrific trade policy known as the North American Free Trade Agreement, more commonly referred to as NAFTA. But like so much of our political discourse, are such designations too simplistic? To begin our conversation around NAFTA is Rob Scott. Scott is Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy for the Economic and Policy Institute located in Washington, D.C. Rob Scott, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Let's begin by having you unpack NAFTA. You know, what is it in theory versus what is it in actuality? Well, in theory, NAFTA was sold as an agreement to lower tariffs between Mexico and the United States. It's a simp- the United States. At the simplest level, uh, the argument was that tariffs uh, were much higher in Mexico uh, than they were in the United States. And so uh, if everybody lowered tariffs to zero, then uh, it would uh, uh, favor the United States. We'd have a a much improved access to Mexico. And so that was supposed to increase exports to Mexico. And, And that was the primary way in which it was characterized to the public and, and the members of Congress. It's actually much more than that, as it turned out, but I think that at, the, at first blush is uh, the way the agreement was conceptualized. What is it in actuality? <laughs> well, it is actually a deep-seated uh, uh, arrangement to change uh, the nature of a global uh, production process. It uh, uh, It was a an agreement of almost a thousand pages that included detailed rules governing uh, investment, intellectual property rights, uh, trade and services, uh, and so forth, uh, that uh, resulted in fundamental changes in the structure of the North American economy, uh, both between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, and uh, also uh, within the co- these countries. I, I didn't mention Canada earlier because uh, Canada and the United States already had a free trade agreement in place uh, from 1989. Uh, so the the real uh, new factor in this uh, NAFTA agreement was the uh, introduction of Mexico into this uh, North American uh, arrangement. Is it fair to suggest, and uh, at least from the perspective of the public discourse, that when the term trade comes up, the people's opinions about trade, and this, and this specifically NAFTA, are shaped largely by sound bites. And what I just heard you say, um, it's a lot more complicated than that. It is more complicated than that, but I think the public perception is also uh, influenced by uh, what, what uh, workers and communities have actually experienced 
following the implementation of the NAFTA uh, agreement. And actually, there's been a lot of change in the structure of the global economy since NAFTA was signed in 93 and implemented in 1994. And NAFTA has become, uh, if you will, a lightning rod for a lot of that. So if indeed um, NAFTA was designed in theory, uh, that you outlined in the first part of your initial answer, uh, to spur economic growth and and produce competition in in domestic markets and promoting investment, both domestically and and foreign sources. In your view, has it worked? Well, I think that uh, NAFTA has worked uh, for some uh, actors in the economy, and Mm -hmm. and it's hurt most working people in all three countries. Uh, My uh, founder of my uh, institute, Jeff Foe, uh, has uh, written a book about NAFTA called uh, The Global Class War. Uh, he, he argues that uh, NAFTA has become, a, uh, in effect, a, something of a constitution uh, for the North American economy, uh, written by uh, and for uh, multinational corporations. So uh, big companies have won. Uh, their profits have gone up enormously. Uh, the share of profits in national income has risen dramatically over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, we've seen uh, the loss of jobs in the United States. Uh, we've lost about somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 800,000 jobs, according to the estimates I've uh, done. And um, We've lost. Uh, we've also seen, I think, much more importantly, downward pressure on the wages of uh, workers who don't have a college degree, and those workers make up the vast majority of the labor force. About uh, a little less than two thirds of all workers do not have a college degree, and they're the ones that have suffered the most as a result of the growth of globalization over the past uh, 20 to 30 years. So in, in your view, uh, uh, specifically with, with those workers that you just referred, um, what's missing from NAFTA or, and or what's missing from any trade agreements going further, I mean, in the future, in your view? Well, we actually had an alternative model available on the table when NAFTA was created. Uh, that was the model that was uh, chosen uh, and implemented by the uh, European community when they integrated with uh, Greece and Spain and Portugal, which at the time were very poor developing countries on the southern uh, periphery of, uh, of the European community. And in that case, they, those, uh, the EC chose to uh, invest heavily in the development of those uh, poor neighbors uh, before they opened up uh, trade and investment between those economies. And as a result, uh, levels of education, levels of wages rose, and it was a win-win agreement for workers in both the North and the South. Uh, We created vehicles in NAFTA to invest uh, in Mexico, but they were largely illusions. There was very little real funding that flowed into those vehicles or flowed into uh, Mexico, and certainly almost none that affected uh, the the workers in uh, Mexican labor markets. Do you worry that the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, is following those same lines that you just outlined? 
I'm very concerned about the TPP. Uh, over the, the 20 years that have uh, followed NAFTA, these agreements have grown more and more complex. They've involved uh, much uh, uh, greatly expanded uh, sets of rules, mostly, again, working to benefit um, foreign investors over uh, working people. Um, in addition, um, with uh, uh, Mexico, we had roughly balanced trade uh, when NAFTA took effect. Uh, gradually, over the next 15 or 20 years, we developed a large and growing trade deficit, mostly in uh, manufactured goods, especially in motor vehicles and parts and electronics. And that's why we lost uh, seven or 800,000 jobs. Uh, well, with the, the uh, now with the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries, I've, I've looked at that group of countries. We start off in 2015 with an existing trade deficit with those countries. You have to understand that trade deficits uh, lead to job loss uh, because uh, exports uh, support domestic production and domestic jobs, but imports uh, uh, cost jobs by uh pushing workers out of competing industries in the domestic economy. Uh, so if you're exporting uh, less than you're importing, uh, then trade has uh, has reduced uh, work, uh, employment, the demand for labor in the domestic economy. And that's where we find ourselves with the TPP, of a trade deficit of just under $200 billion, those countries uh, today. And by my calculations, um, we have already lost 2 million jobs due to those trade deficits with the 11 TPP countries, including countries like Japan and Korea, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and Vietnam, as well as Mexico and Canada. So uh, we start off from a worse place, and the agreement, I think, is even more tilted in favor of large multinational companies. So I fear uh, that uh, if we uh, complete the agreement is going to lead to growing trade deficits and downward pressure on more downward pressure on wages and uh, incomes of working people. I think it's also going to be bad for working families uh, in other countries. And I'm going to go back to because um, in, in that last answer, you sort of touched on something that that also applied to NAFTA. You you referenced um, you know automobile industries going you know to Mexico, but right. and then and those are American those are American companies now. Explain, if you will, why is it that American companies are seeking, you know, greener pastures, if you will, in Mexico when there are, we need jobs here in America? How did NAFTA impact that? Is what I'm asking. Well, we have. Uh, it's, it's not just American companies; it's also uh, foreign companies, German auto companies. Uh, Volkswagen, for example, has a have big plants down there. I think some of the Japanese companies as well. Uh, what they're all doing is uh, uh, they they have over the process of the last 20 years uh, uh, engaged in a process of splitting up the production process. They took the labor-intensive parts of production, or they could and uh, uh, they offshored production. They invested abroad to take advantage of low labor costs in Mexico, and uh, that is what has cost jobs. So you took a factory that used to be located in Detroit, uh, shut it down, moved it to Mexico, uh, and uh, the parts that used to be shipped to that plant in Detroit are now shipped to Mexico. So exports go up, um, but of course imports go up. Uh, even faster uh, because the value of those uh, assembled cars is, is exceeds the value of the, of the goods that we're shipping to Mexico. So I think that's an important point to, to note about these trade deals. You may see uh, increases in the volume of trade, but they may not reflect 
fundamental growth in uh, the underlying uh, level of output in the economy. In fact, in this case, uh, output fell uh, when we moved uh, parts of the production process to Mexico. Now, reduced tariffs were was part of the selling of uh, of NAFTA in its inception. That was one of the benefits. Right. Uh, but we, we, we hear now, let's see, really uh, stridently, I, I would say, with a uh, the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, for example, calling for increased tariffs. Just taking it with what we have with NAFTA right now, what impact would that have on U.S. trade? Well, the, the problem with just increasing tariffs on, on, on Mexico is that we have essentially integrated Mexico into our production system. And so uh, if you just uh, uh, decide that you're going to solve our trade problems by imposing tariffs on Mexico, that's going to simply raise the cost of production. It may or may not result in factories uh, being moved back to the United States. Uh, I think firms will be resistant to doing that. They'll, they'll do everything they can to fight the tariffs uh, in uh, Congress, at the WTO, and so on. So uh, if, even if uh, the, uh, Trump could manage to, to, to achieve uh, or, imp- or implement a policy like that short run, it, it would be uh, very tough to follow through on. Um, I think we need a much more uh, comprehensive approach to addressing American trade problems. The United States does have uh, a large persistent structural trade deficit. Um, it, it is dominated by trade with China, trade with uh, uh, Japan, trade with Germany. Those are really the big unfair traders in the global economy. And uh, I think uh, there's several things that we can do to rebalance trade and rebuild manufacturing. Uh, one of them is to um, does have to do with the value of the, of the dollar with, with currency, and that's an issue that's been talked about by uh, Donald Trump and several of the other candidates. Uh, this whole question of, of currency manipulation, which has been a problem for for many years, uh, these countries have been buying up dollars and and uh, depressing the value of their currencies, and that acts like a subsidy to their exports to the United States. And that's how they build up these huge trade surpluses with the U.S. And uh, effectively, they've exported unemployment uh, to the U.S. Uh, and 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 decimated our manufacturing industries. Most of what we trade are manufactured goods. So we have to we have to reverse that process. Rob, uh, if I may. If I may, I just want to just chime in because I want you to touch on something. I think you're on to something important here, though I don't want to delve into monetary policy per se. Specifically mm-hmm. with the currency piece that you just referenced, what's viable that can be that, – that, what's a viable alternative there? Well, there's a number of viable alternatives uh, available. Uh, one of them is to is to uh, is something that the Congress has proposed to uh, pass a law that would allow uh, the Commerce Department to impose tariffs on products coming from countries that are manipulating their currencies. Um, I think another is, and I think this is perhaps more useful, is to step back and look at the problem more broadly as one of not just manipulation, which implies that other countries have an intent to to injure the United States, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, and it's, it's clearly outlawed in the rules of WTO and the IMF. But there's also a deeper problem, which is uh, currencies have become misaligned through a combination of manipulation and uh, market forces. Uh, the United States has been growing faster than other countries, so it's made the dollar attractive, and, and the dollar has risen about 15 or 20 percent in the, in the last uh, year and a half or two years. And, and so that's a fundamental part of the problem of uh, these l- big structural trade deficits. And we need to respond to that. And one way to respond to it is to, is to, get, uh, is to implement some creative policies that have been proposed by other economists. Uh, there's a proposal in particular for something called uh, countervailing currency intervention, uh, or in essence, what we would do is is uh, offset what has been done by China and Japan and, and other countries. We would begin to buy up the currencies of, of countries that have big trade surpluses uh, and uh, drive the, the value of their currencies up relative to the dollar, and that would make us uh, more competitive uh, and shrink uh, that trade deficit and help rebuild manufacturing jobs in the, in the United States. How uh, and I'm 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 dating at least myself here. You probably read about it, but I'm dating myself. How close are we to uh, Ross Perot's warning of a giant sucking sound when NAFTA was uh, close to being implemented? I think that Ross Perot vastly overstated the case with respect to NAFTA in particular. As I said, we've lost seven or 800,000 jobs to Mexico. Ross Perot said it would be millions. Uh, it turned out that the country we lost millions of jobs to instead was not uh, Mexico, it was China. China. It was the entry of China into the global economy, uh, especially uh, facilitated by uh, the decision in 2000 and 2001 to, uh, to bring it into the World Trade Organization and to allow it to, to give it what they call a most favored nation trading status, give it the lowest uh, tariffs and the best access uh, to the U.S. market that really fundamentally changed the structure of the global economy. So that's where the, the big shift came from, uh, was bringing in China. Now, listening to, to this conversation, I um, uh, again, I, I um, thought we were past the um, free trade versus protectionist uh, debate. I thought that I thought that one had been settled, but um, do you see us heading back in that direction, that trajectory? Well, I don't think it was ever just free trade versus protectionism. Um, the agreements that the United States has been, and many other countries have been negotiating uh, over the last 20 to, to 30 years have really been free trade and investment deals. They have been designed to encourage this process of outsourcing and the global uh, shifting of production across borders and uh, systematically, uh, I think, uh, you know, squeezing labor out of production in the north. Uh, This has had a particularly pernicious effect on employment in the United States. Uh, Other countries have managed to hang on to a much larger share of their manufacturing labor force in countries like Japan and like Germany because uh, they've been much more aggressive about uh, defending uh, their manufacturing industries. So it's really been about uh, it's been a, it's been a battle over the rules of the global economy, as I said earlier, which have been tilted in favor of large multinational companies uh, and away uh, from uh, working.
asking people. So it's, it's uh, for example, in the proposed uh, TPP agreement, there are large sections of the agreement. It has about 30 chapters, large sections that have to do with the protection of intellectual property rights. Uh, and this is going to generate increased profits for makers of uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, movies, uh, and software. Uh, these are the, some of the biggest beneficiaries of this deal. So it's not about getting access to cheap goods and, or lowering tariffs. It's about creating profits for gigantic companies that have uh, economic and political power in uh, the U.S. and the global economy. So it, it's really never been about uh, free trade versus protectionism. It's about who's going to write the rules for the global economy. So some of those uh, um, policies you just articulated, does that concern you more? Uh, does that have a, a negative impact on workers here, or is it the fact that in these trade policies, some those low-end workers in the bottom quartile that you referenced earlier would just be ignored or just pushed away through um, sort, of Dar- sort of economic Darwinianism, if you will? No, I think it's it's uh, what's happening is, is several things are going on at once. The workers that are hardest hit are not those in the bottom quarter. Those workers largely are not involved in the, in manufacturing. It's it's really uh, workers in the uh, heart of uh, the labor force and the middle classes, and that's what's disappeared uh, from our economy over the last two to three decades. So the, the size of the middle class uh, has been shrinking dramatically, uh, and that's because of the downward pressure of uh, the in part that globalization has brought. Uh, to the wages of working people. It's been estimated by my colleague, Josh Bivens, that globalization has reduced the wages of the median wage worker in all industries. Uh, that is, median wage non-college educated worker uh, has been reduced by about $2,000 per worker uh, per year. Uh, 1800 actually was his exact figure. It's gone up since then. That was a figure in 2011. And uh, so that, I think, is a real good indicator of the, of the pressure on wages and how it's distributed uh, in the economy. The other thing, though, that these agreements are doing is, as I said, is they're also shifting profits from workers uh, to these big companies selling uh, pharmaceuticals and software and entertainment. Um, and that's going to hurt workers both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, think of uh, workers in Vietnam or Malaysia who had access to low-cost uh, generic forms of drugs for things, uh, for all kinds of illnesses, from uh, from from cancer to heart treatments uh, and so on. Uh, well, under this agreement, they're not going to have to pay U.S. prices for those drugs. Uh, patents are going to be ex- uh, applied and extended for these these drugs, and this is going to to extract. Uh, profits from these very low-income economies. It's going to mean two things. There'll be less money to spend on other goods, on the exports from the United States, and it's going to mean that tens of thousands or or more uh, sick patients in these countries simply don't have access to the medicines that they need. And so you'll see a a real impact on mortality rates in these economies as well. And I think so. Workers are going to be hurt in many ways in both uh, the, the U.S. and the partner trading countries in the TPP. Speaking of the TPP, when I hear um, some of the, the political rhetoric, the sound bites, um, I, I hear these calls that sort of suggest that we could have a do-over on TPP. Is that, is, is, is that realistic or is that just an applause line? 
I think uh, it depends on who you listen to. I, I, I think <laughs> that uh, you know when you listen to Bernie Sanders or when you listen to Donald Trump, I think they're very clear that they think the whole uh, notion of the TPP uh, is fundamentally flawed. Uh, Bernie Sanders emphasizes he's been against every trade deal that has been proposed since NAFTA, and I think he would he would oppose the TPP as well. I think we could conceive of a TPP agreement that would be good for worker, working people. Uh, one of the things these agreements have done is is generate a race to the bottom in uh, wages and in environmental standards, uh, and that's been bad for workers everywhere uh, and bad for consumers as well. Uh, well, we can conceive of a, of a, of a multi-country agreement that would raise labor standards in both the U.S. and our partner trading uh, partners, that would raise environmental standards and create a race to the top uh, to uh, try and, uh, for example, uh, reduce energy consumption and, and increase uh, uh, investments in clean energy, alternative energy, uh, that would create uh, real jobs uh, producing products that are needed uh, to, uh, to to displace conventional energy production. So that's the, those we can imagine an agreement that would do that, but it would look nothing like the NAFTA or the TPP as it's presently conceived. Rob Scott, I want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We will continue our discussion on NAFTA with Ed Gerwin, senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute, also in Washington D.C. Ed Gerwin, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It's good to join you today. We just had Rick Scott on from the Economic and Policy Institute, um, so I'll begin by asking you a similar question that I posed to him. If indeed NAFTA was designed to promote economic growth by spurring competition, um, has it worked, in your opinion? Well, you know, it's difficult to talk about NAFTA. I'd like to uh, say that NAFTA is kind of a bad brand. It's it's the five-letter equivalent of a four-letter word. <laughs> Everyone associates NAFTA with everything that's bad in the economy, with globalization, uh, productivity, technological change. I remember a number of years ago I was in Cleveland talking to a voter who was convinced that because of NAFTA, which, as you know, is the United States, Canada, and Mexico, that the Chinese were eating our lunch economically. So it's you know, it's kind of a loaded term, but if you actually go and look at the studies on NAFTA, for example, the Congressional Research Service did a big study of studies a number of years ago, and it found economists think that NAFTA has on balance been good for the United States. Trade has grown by um, 400 percent. The um, three countries are able to make things together, and that makes us as a team more competitive against countries like China. Um, studies indicate that NAFTA supports something like 5 million jobs. We have something like 14 million jobs in our trade with Canada and Mexico. So most economists think, I think, that NAFTA has on balance been good. Certainly it has had negative impacts in certain sectors, in the textile industry, in the apparel industry, in some sectors of agriculture. 
uh, and that has been certainly bad for the people who are affected by that. But according to the Congressional Research Study, NAFTA has on balance been good. It hasn't resulted in the huge sucking sound of job loss that Ross Perot predicted, but it also, uh, in fairness, hasn't led to the you know blue skies and rainbows that some of the uh, proponents of NAFTA uh, thought it would back in 1994. Um, when you hear the political rhetoric describing NAFTA, what goes through your mind? Well, as I said before, I think it's it's a bad brand. Basically, the opponents of NAFTA, after NAFTA was passed, the supporters of NAFTA moved on to the next thing, and the opponents of NAFTA spent a lot of time writing the story about NAFTA, about how it was bad, how people were losing jobs, how it was closing factories, and in truth, some of that happened. But there's a lot of good that came from NAFTA. The problem is, uh, you know, for political debate, it's now such a loaded term that I think it's, it's difficult to talk about. What I've said to people is we really shouldn't be focusing in our current political debates on NAFTA, but on opportunities to grow our economy by trading the rest of the world and by the threat of China coming into the global economy and writing the rules of trade in ways that suit them if we decide we're going to sit on the sidelines. So when, when, when there are stories um, in, say, the New York Times uh, of communities once thriving that were supported by maybe a single industry or perhaps two industries that are now decimated because those companies have moved, invariably that gets blamed on NAFTA. Is that an accurate uh, analysis, or is it more, uh, once again, continuing with our theme for the day, is it more complicated than that? I think it's much more complicated. Certainly, there are companies that have moved from the United States to mostly Mexico because of NAFTA, because it's easier to invest there. Uh, You don't have duties coming back. But I think much more of that change is taking place for a variety of other reasons. Um, You know, companies not only move from here to foreign countries, they move to other states because of incentives. Uh, Companies move because of technological change. Uh, All of that happens. The other thing that I think tends to not be reported is that at the same time those companies are leaving the United States, We've got other companies coming in from Canada and Mexico and throughout the world that are creating jobs in the United States. So, for example, during the recent Indiana primary, there was a lot of discussion, and I believe it was a uh, Maytag factory that was closing and moving to Mexico. And everyone was saying, well, this is an indication of what NAFTA and trade generally has done to the economy. One of the things that wasn't reported at the same time Mercedes-Benz is coming into Indiana. They're taking over an old Hummer plant, and they're going to start building Mercedes-Benz, I think they're R-Class SUVs, to send from Indiana to China. There is a ton of churn in the global economy. You know, companies move, companies relocate, um, industries change. And I think we have to recognize that companies leave this country, but they're also coming into the country because we tend to have open, more open trade and investment policies, which create opportunities for all of the foreign-owned companies uh, want to do business here. I think something like 20% of our exports 
are, are from companies that are owned by foreign um, enterprises. So it's, it's a much more complicated story. You know, the problem is when someone loses their job at a factory because it's going to Mexico, that's all over the news. We don't see the kind of countervailing stories of companies coming in, and we also don't see, for example, the benefits that consumers get from more open trade. The White House has estimated that about a quarter of the purchasing power of the average middle-class family comes from the fact that we have more open trade. People can get things that are imports, that are less expensive, uh, of higher quality, and they can save on their budgets and go out and buy other things. Now, I I know that my next question touches more in the realm of uh, monetary policy, but in regard to those countries where the United States does have a, a trade deficit, it seems that those are also the countries that are, are devaluing their currency. Now, you, know, you hear, a, again, you hear a lot of talk on, on the campaign trail and within Congress about taking reactionary measures to, to fight that. Is there, is there anything that can be done there, or, or we just is that too reactionary and, once again, oversimplifies a very complex issue? Well, it's a very complicated issue, and, and, and I'll tell you, I am not an economist and I'm not a monetary policy expert. I'm a trade lawyer by uh, background, so I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on monetary policy. But here are a couple of things. First of all, there has been a considerable amount of disagreement as to exactly what constitutes current currency manipulation among economists. One of the things that Congress just did which a number of people think could be quite useful, is in some recent legislation, they actually defined what currency manipulation is, and they set three criteria for judging that. One of the things that the Treasury Department is now doing is monitoring those three criteria and issuing a, a report or guidance every year as to whether countries are manipulating currency. Most recently, they found that none actually are, but that there are a couple on the list that we need to keep an eye on because they're doing some of the three things. Um, that is a really good tool for the experts on monetary policy, particularly folks at the Treasury Department and our diplomats, to use to go to other countries to jawbone them and say, look, you, you've got to get away from this because it's, it's problematic for our trade and it could cause all kinds of other problems. Now, I know... A lot of people would say, well, that's just some report. You know, we really actually need to be able to impose duties on these countries to counteract this manipulation. I know Mr. Trump has said, let's just slap a 45% duty uh, on imports coming in from China. Well, that has all kinds of unintended consequences. It, it invites retaliation from China. It would stop many of our exports. It would put people in exporting businesses out of work. It would raise prices for our consumers. You know, if you put a 45% tariff on stuff coming in from China, suddenly your phones and some of your clothes and your laptops and other things are more expensive. Now, people will say, well, you know, they'll make them here, but they'll be a lot more expensive. Maybe you'll create some new jobs by doing that, but you're going to put a lot of other people out of work and you're going to raise prices for people. And probably, you know, it's not beyond the realm of comprehension to think that you could start a, a nice little global trade war, which 
would really be bad for everyone. Well, just um, in your analysis of uh, uh, Mr. Trump's um, desire to place uh, large tariffs on companies, I mean, it's been about 70 years, 80, 70 years plus since we've had that type of language in the political discourse and and taken seriously. Is that, that, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the old Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s. And would you explain which, Smoot-Hawley to, to our listeners, please? Yeah, basically at the, at the beginning of the Depression, many people in Congress said, well, the best way for us to grow our economy is to slap all kinds of very high duties on products coming in from the global economy. And we can make things here and sell them to ourselves, and we're a large economy and we'll prosper. What it did is it caused all kinds of retaliation between and among countries. And most economists think it really served to wreck the global economy, which back then was a lot less interconnected than it is now. And, you know, some people say it was an indirect cause of the Second World War because you had so many countries that were driven even further into recession or depression. I mean, most studies of high tariffs or quotas or other high trade barriers say that they may help some people. You know, if you're in an industry in the United States that can't compete unless you have a high duty to protect you, maybe that'll help you. But it'll hurt a lot of other businesses and it will raise prices for consumers and create all kinds of unintended consequences in the global economy. What what, what do you say to those um, talking with... uh... Hey, Gerwin here, um, what do you say to those uh, critical of the Trans-Pacific Partnership who see it as but an extension of the worst aspects of NAFTA? Well, two things. First of all, it is not an extension of the worst aspects of NAFTA. In fact, some of the things that critics have pointed out about NAFTA that have been problematic and that I agree with, for example, the fact that NAFTA did not have in its core document real strong rules about labor or the environment. They were in these side agreements, and they weren't really enforceable under the agreement. They've criticized that. One of the things that the Trans-Pacific Partnership would do would be to take labor requirements and environmental requirements, make sure that countries have to enforce those rules, put it in the very core of the agreement, and enable countries to enforce it. And because Canada and Mexico are part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that would enable um, labor and environmental rules to be enforced much more stringently than they currently are under NAFTA. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Trans-Pacific Partnership goes well beyond NAFTA in some important ways. You know, for example, one of the things that I've been focused on at the Progressive Policy Institute is making sure that we can spread the benefits of trade to more people in our economy. We need to use trade to grow the pie, but then we need to make sure that we're dividing up that pie and getting more people a slice. One of the things that the Trans-Pacific Partnership focuses on, for example, is the digital economy, the ability to trade over the Internet. Now you, you, you've written extensively on that, haven't you? So you? Yes, I have. I have. And, you know, the point of this is it used to be 20 years ago when I was a trade lawyer, and if a small business came into my office with a really good idea, by the time I explained to them all the things they had to do to export, 
they usually were saying, nah, I'm not going to do it, or they'd give their idea to some big company to get all of the benefit. Now with the Internet, you can really cut out the middleman. And if you're a small business, a small, even a sole proprietorship, you can actually export things over the Internet uh, to foreign countries. Um, here, here's a really, I think, interesting statistic. Only about 5% of our small companies export. But if you look at the companies who use eBay and who sell at least, I think, $10,000 worth of goods, which isn't a lot, 97% of those companies export. That's, I mean, that's a real opportunity. If we want to talk about being more inclusive, giving people opportunity to participate in trade and to grow their own economies and to provide jobs, that kind of digitally enabled small business trade can really, really make a big difference. And one of the things that's really interesting is it helps all kinds of groups that have traditionally not participated in trade. So, for example, if you look at minority-owned companies that trade and you compare those to those that don't, the ones that trade employ three times more people and they pay something like $17,000 more in salaries. So there's a real opportunity under TPP to do some new things in Internet-enabled trade, in small business trade, that can help the benefits of trade be distributed more broadly in our economy. Now, one of the um, sound bites we often hear, um, those who go after, say, NAFTA or, or, or critical of TPP, is that they want to be clear that they're not opposed to free trade. But they do want fair trade, which, which on the surface sounds makes sense to most people, I would imagine. What is fair trade, in, in, in given the realities that you've outlined? Well, I mean, you know, kind of like NAFTA, fair trade is a loaded term. It's kind of what people – it is kind of what different people want it to think. You know, my view is this. I think we really have a choice between doing trade agreements of the type we have with TPP and everyone working as hard as they can to make sure that those agreements are as fair as possible to the United States and to people in other countries, or we're not going to do trade agreements at all. I think, you know, those people will say we want to scrap TPP, we want to scrap current agreements, and we want to start again with a new model. It all sounds very, you know, inspiring and revolutionary. But the fact is, we've been negotiating this TPP for six years. If we suddenly were to scrap this, First of all, most of our partners would move on because countries like Japan have lots of other people knocking at the door who want to do trade agreements with them. I mean, that's the first problem. But secondly, it would take years and years to do a new model. In the meantime, we get nothing. You know, if you're concerned, for example, about higher labor standards in Vietnam, there's a lot in this agreement that would um, – require Vietnam to have higher labor standards and abide by them. I was in Vietnam in September, and I talked to representatives from the International Labor Organization who were quite pleased with some of the stuff that the TPP would do. You don't have a TPP. You get none of that. We have no leverage over Vietnam. They're not going to just do it um, without us using the leverage that we have. The same is true of the environment. You know, I noticed that the U.S. trade representative recently went down to Peru and did a tour of forests down there. We've been using the Peru trade agreement 
uh, as leverage to get them to do more responsible environmental things when it comes to their forestry practices. Is it perfect? Are there abuses? There certainly are. There are labor abuses in countries we have agreements with. There are environmental problems. There are other problems. But my view is that we really need, you know, folks who are concerned about fair trade really ought to be pushing to improve these agreements to get the best, in, in future agreements like the one we're doing with Europe, get the best deals we can and then make sure they're fully implemented. If we just scrap them, as many fair trade critics say we should, we've got nothing, we've got no leverage, and the things that those of us who are progressives are worried about, uh, about labor, about the environment, about uh, helping poor people get a leg up through trade, uh, that's all going to go by the wayside. Talking here with Ed Gerwin, uh, while uh, we have you here, you know, just listen to this conversation that we're having. You know, I'm 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 starting to question: Are um, are we past the uh, debate between free trade and protectionism? I, I thought I thought that was passe, but maybe I'm jumping the gun. You know, I don't know, Byron. Um, you know, the problem is there is you know the soundbite discussion of trade that we hear in our political debates, and it gets particularly bad every four years. And then there's the kind of more rational debate that we really should be having about trade policy. I mean, the soundbite stuff all sounds, you know, good in a, you know, in a, in a 20-minute clip on TV. But oftentimes, on both sides of the debate, it's really bad trade policy. My view is that what we ought to be doing, and those of us who are progressives particularly ought to be doing, is focusing on two things. The first thing is... How can we use trade to grow the pie, to grow the economic pie? You know, in 2030, the middle class in Asia is going to be 10 times the size of the middle class in the United States. Those are folks who want to buy stuff that we make, and we really can't miss out on the opportunity to sell them, and we can use that to grow the pie. But the second thing, and I think something that a lot of trade proponents miss out on, is we also have to make sure that the benefits of that bigger pie go to more people. As I said before, that everybody or more people have a chance to get a slice. So that's why we're focusing on small business and using the Internet for trade. That's why I think it's really important that we should focus broadly in the economy on making sure that people have better skills because many trade-related jobs um, require higher skills. They also tend to pay more. They tend to pay about 15% more, which is a partial solution to income inequality. Um, you know, another thing we really should be focusing on is infrastructure. I think there's pretty broad agreement in our country that our infrastructure is shot. And if we can build up that infrastructure, we're more competitive in global markets, we can trade more efficiently, but we're also creating lots of good jobs in construction and other areas for folks who can, through those jobs, ind indirectly benefit from trade. That's the discussion I think we ought to be having about trade, not you know, whether we have protectionist policies or fair trade, but how do we grow the pie and how do we make sure that more people get a piece of it? 
Is it because, um, and, and frankly, Ed, I mean, that, th- those things sound very, I mean, sound very logical to me. In fact, one needs only um, ride on one of their roads to know we need infrastructure improvements. Um, but is that because what you just articulated is long is long term and doesn't offer the quick fix? Is, is, is that why we don't hear more of that and we hear more of the sort of reactionary rhetoric that sort of gets an applause line on the campaign trail but really has no other value? I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I think my kind of rule of thumb is when it comes to trade policy, the quicker the fix, probably the dumber the idea. Um, you know, a lot of these things take a while to plan. You know, these agreements, for example, have taken years to negotiate. And that, in the case of the TPP, we have 12 countries sitting around the table. It's like, you know, trying to play 12-level chess. This stuff is complicated. And, but, but we can do good things if we really work at it and negotiate and understand where our trading partners are coming from and try to make it a win-win situation, which I think we can. I think, you know, if you go back to, you know, the old economists like David Ricardo, they say that trade has the potential to be a situation in which everyone comes out better than they would have um, uh, individually. Uh, But that takes work, and that takes time, and that takes patience. And unfortunately, uh, it's not the kinds of thing, it's not the kind of effort that often gets rewarded um, in our soundbite political culture. Well, uh, I'm re- when just hearing your last answer, I'm reminded of the words of H.L. Uh, Mencken, uh, who says, for every complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. So that kind of, that kind of <laughs> sums up our trade policy conversation uh, this app this morning. Ed Gerwin, I want to thank you very much uh, for being on the public reality, and I'm sure we will have you back to get your thoughts as this campaign unfolds and uh, talk more about trade policy. Thank you so much, sir. Well, it's an honor to join you, Byron. Thank you very much. That was Ed Gerwin, Senior Fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I'm already on record as opposing North Carolina's HB2, also known as the bathroom bill. I find it to be reactionary, overreaching, and short-sighted. Since the lawsuits and countersuits between the state of North Carolina and the federal government, an interesting question has arisen that was proposed by a recent New York Times article. Quote, can a law written in the heat of the civil rights movement generations ago apply to people the drafters never intended to cover. I suspect myriad individuals on both sides of the political spectrum already have a prepared response to the aforementioned closed-ended question. But too often, the simplicity on the surface belies the complexity that dwells underneath. Does it matter what the original drafters intended or what the law actually states? And is that law open to interpretation 
or must it remain frozen in perpetuity? This was certainly the tension created when those advocating for marriage equality cited the 14th Amendment as the basis for the LGBT community to legally wed. Opponents of marriage equality countered that the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, address slavery and should not be seen beyond that. That is certainly true for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, but the 14th Amendment is not so clear. As a result, the 14th Amendment was used to justify and then to later strike down Jim Crow laws. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which begins, All persons born or naturalized citizens in the United States grants everyone due process and equal protection under the law. Unfortunately, the drafters did not add any qualifiers in the footnotes, suggesting a different definition of the word all. But does the Civil Rights Act of 1964 offer a clear answer regarding HB2? Is there language in the act that allows for inclusion of transgender persons? U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch believes HB2 was a clear violation. As she stated in her recent press conference, quote, They created state-sponsored discrimination against transgendered individuals who simply seek to engage in the most private of functions in a place of safety and security, a right taken for granted by most of us, unquote. If we leave it there, both sides can freely participate in the debate without any consideration of the law. But the law, too, is ambiguous on this case. Since 2004, the federal court has heard numerous cases coming down on both sides for and against the transgender community. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has said nothing. So where do we go from here? There was a tendency to cling to the outcome as a determining factor. The humiliating and sometimes frustrating reality for most of us who participate in the public discourse on any level is that the only bar we've passed is our local tavern. Therefore, there is an over-reliance placed on how we see an issue commingling our desires as synonymous with the definition of justice. I certainly felt this way about the Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby County versus Holder. Instead of citing the Constitution, Justice John Roberts, in my view, offered a sociological analysis to strike down key provisions in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. It is too simplistic to offer what the original drafters of any legislation intended as justification to exclude any group of Americans. All legislation carries the potential of unintended consequences. Nor can the matter be simply put to a vote as a way of ensuring the will of the people. In 1963, would white citizens of Birmingham have approved an ordinance that would have abolished segregation? So we need the courts to serve as the umpires for our democracy. Their jurisprudence cannot be held hostage by our desired outcomes. Linear pursuits of an ever-changing human condition, given its complexities, will always prove insufficient. Regardless of the outcome, HB2 once again demonstrates the difficulty when a nation commits itself to pursue the elusive more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.